Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. Sustainable Stories is here to bring you the stories behind sustainability in our communities. From big to small, practical to theoretical, we're exploring the people and projects that are working to make our world a more sustainable, equitable, and healthy place to live. Welcome back to the Sustainable Stories podcast. My name is Jenna Inglot, and I will be your host for today's episode. I am coming to you today from my house near Blaine Lake, Saskatchewan, on Treaty 6 territory and the homeland of the Métis. I'm very excited about today's conversation. I have with me Devin Page, who is the Executive Director of EcoJustice, which is Canada's largest environmental law charity. So welcome, Devin. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. So just to start us off, Devin, if you don't mind sharing a little bit about yourself, um, you know, who you are and what you do, and, and maybe a little bit about the journey that led you to where you are today. Sure. The... There could be a lot there, but let me <laughs> say that, first of all, I would describe myself as an environmentalist and an environmental lawyer, and then, as you described it, the executive director of EcoJustice. The, interestingly enough, I described the journey as starting in Saskatchewan, so I didn't know you're from there, so I find that interesting. And it started from Saskatchewan because my family were vacationers meaning summer campers. And so we spent our almost our entire summer traveling across mostly Western Canada, camping in tents and then tent trailers and things like that. So a lot of my childhood, I equate with that camping experience and really short circuit that. That pretty much led to where I am today. And one example of that is when we were camping, quite often we'd show up at um, some campsite in Saskatchewan or BC or Alberta. And we'd set up tent and then our parents would hand us garbage bags and we'd tell us basically go pick garbage in the campsite. And, you know, it was made fun, not punishment. But what it started to do is connect us with this issue of taking care of the environment. So seeds like that were kind of sown in my life over time. I period that I describe as particularly relevant is tree planting in Saskatchewan, Alberta and British Columbia in the north that helped put me through school. Seeing what was happening on the ground, thinking that I was tree planting to protect the environment, realized what I was doing was tree planting to basically continue an industry that was unsustainable, led me directly to law school. I became an environmental lawyer, but there aren't very many environmental lawyer jobs in Canada. So I practiced at a Saskatchewan litigation firm for six years until I was hired at EcoJustice almost 20 years ago as their forestry lawyer, not knowing anything about forestry. And from that, I I did a number of things, environmental litigation, mostly on forestry and species at risk issues until I became the executive director. So that's kind of the summarized trajectory. Wow. Very cool. Um, It's so interesting you talked about you know, that link, linking things back to your childhood. Um, This podcast is relatively new, but we've been uh, on the air for 32 weeks now, um, launching a podcast every week. And it's so interesting that every guest, regardless of their background or where they live or what they do for work, um, seems to connect that back 
you know, their, their path and their passion in this space back to something in their childhood or, you know, some, something from their parents or grandparents that was sort of passed along. Um, so anyways, it's just interesting that you, you linked that back to your childhood as well um, and camping and spending time outdoors. So. Yeah. And you know, the other comment I would make is I grew up in small towns, Saskatchewan. I'm talking like really small towns of 500 where it was easy to walk away from town into whatever the neighboring environment was. So as kids, and, and you know, in small town Saskatchewan, you just roam on your own. So in kids, I would, as a child, spent the majority of time roaming around, you know, whether it was in the valley that adjoined one town or even in the fields in what were mostly farming communities. That's what you did. It makes me wonder how kids in urban environments get that same connection but anyway as a kid in Saskatchewan at that time you just did whatever you wanted out in the wilderness so yeah definitely a connection back to who I am today yeah very cool um likewise I grew up in a small town in southeastern Saskatchewan of about 400 just about 400 people um and anyways after a long stint of travel and education and living in different places uh, landed back in in rural Saskatchewan as, as well myself. Um, just out of curiosity, Devin, where did you grow up? Like, where is your hometown? Sure. So dad was a bank manager. And back in the day, bank managers had to be transferred regularly. So I've lived in, I mean, this is only going to matter to people that know Southern Saskatchewan, but it was Shonovan, Aneroid, Elrose, and Wawoda. So it took me right across the bottom of the province from one end to the other. Okay, cool. Um, and yeah, you know, I, the interesting thing about that is if you go from if you go from the west side of Saskatchewan, you're in pretty arid land, the land of the Big Muddy, the land of the Cypress Hills, lots of rich, super amazing history. And then you go to the other side and you're in the, um, you make it into the boreal forest that dips down into that side of, of Saskatchewan and then over into Manitoba. So it was, definitely a mix of environments yeah yeah absolutely and i think that that's a big thing too right i think we we often connect um certain uh you know interests and and passion and environmental work with with forests and and water and it's it's very easy especially for folks who didn't grow up on the prairies or don't have a connection to the prairies um often this this subject of grasslands and the importance of grasslands uh kind of gets left out of those conversations but um yeah anyways you'll you'll understand being a southwestern <laughs> i do i yeah. do yeah um so Devin, I'm I'm curious. You know, we talk on the podcast a lot about the concept of of sustainability. Um, you know, being a very uh, you know overused term, and in lots of ways, kind of hard to describe. Um, and so we often kind of ask this question as a way to use the podcast as sort of a living definition of what that means, depending on people's work and the context that they. Um, you know, live and, and breathe. And so I'm wondering if you could share a bit about what sustainability um, means to you or how you define that and, and how you sort of incorporate that understanding um, into your work and your life. Sure. You know, it's interesting. I, I do have a personal definition of sustainability, but it was so interesting when I got the invite for this podcast. I'm right in the middle of developing a lawsuit 
against um, against an organization that claims it's sustainable when in fact it's not. So I find myself dealing with scientists or telling me what the definition of sustainability was. And I was thinking, well, I know exactly what they say sustainable forestry is. The way that I've characterized it for years is we need to live within the earth's means. But as you know, as I've been an environmental lawyer for years and have had been involved in litigation related to that, I know it's it's a lot richer than that. So when I say living within the means, it's living within the means of the planet in a way that maintains biological richness and diversity and vitality and and all eco ecological functions. I mean the ability to restore itself in a way that meets the needs of not only our generation but future generations. Yeah, yeah. Um, I was sort of curious about about that because I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I'm sure there's so much of that now. Um, you know, with with different industries and, and different um, uh, you know products and things that are really marketed yeah. and and pushed around this term sustainability. Um, and and for the average folks, you know, li living their life and, and trying to make decisions and, and maybe trying to make more sustainable decisions, it can be really hard to navigate that when there isn't, um, you know, there's not a lot of checks and balances when, when someone is sort of promoting from a sustainability perspective. If you're not someone who's, you know, up in that field, it's, it's tough to sort of uh, navigate those, that branding, I guess. Well, it is. And, you know, you were going to ask about my personal circumstance. But the other thing, too, is it may be tougher for Canadians than it is for people that live elsewhere, in part because generally what we believe, we believe in this abundance, the abundance of the Canadian environment. It's something that's prevalent in the way it's marketed to us. Whether you're in almost any province, you can see the they'll have tourism advertising, but this, you know, this notion of this untrammeled north. And in many ways, Canada does have abundant environment relative to other places in the world. It politicians currently think it's good to to say that kind of stuff. Um, I think because they don't want to freak people out and what most Canadians don't understand. And this is where I always say I'm not that fun at parties, because what what I often do is disabuse or educate Canadians about the state of the Canadian environment. One one of my colleagues says what EcoJustice finds itself doing, at least from the perspective of our communications activities, is dismantling this notion of Canadian exceptionalism when it comes to the environment and sustainability. So that sustainability on many indicators, recognized objective indicators, um, Canada, we don't engage with the environment in sustainable fashion. And, you know, just as one example, there is no country in the world that logs more original forests than Canada. Yet you would never hear about that. What you'd hear about is the Amazon and people would assume it's the other or elsewhere. But anyway, back to your question about um, personal sustainability. The, you know, the one thing that I would say, it's, and it's the benefit of working in an environmental organization is it really helps to have a peer group that can both sustain and inspire you because even in spite of this notion of, I don't know, awareness about the environment that Canadians may believe, at least as far as the work that EcoJustice does, environmentalism or protecting the environment is counterculture. And so when you engage with the community of Canadians, you'll be exceptional 
by describing how your behavior is sustainable. But for me personally, there are a couple of things that I specifically do that I relate directly to a commitment of sustainability. One is being mostly vegetarian. And I'm not, you know, I'm pretty strict about it, but I'm not very strict with other people. There's an author named Michael Pollan. And for years, I've adopted his prescription, which is eat food, not too much, mostly plants. I mean, I think those are words to live by. And so I have been living by those words for some time. And then other things too, um, in, well, I can say that when I was going to law school in Saskatchewan, I rode my bike year round, even if it was minus 30, which wasn't very fun. But I live in Vancouver now where you can ride a bike year round. So my wife and I made the decision that we were going to live within bike commuting distance of where we worked. And it means sacrificing, you know, because it's an expensive place to live. So that means a smaller home and things like that. Um, so for me, a lot of my commitment is reduction of carbon. And then the last thing is limited travel. In the last few years, it's just I travel for work. And I think of myself as having a carbon account and work travel almost completely eats up my carbon account. So otherwise, is we do limited traveling. And that's kind of a, that's the way that I look at it for, in terms of living a sustainable lifestyle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that's great. Great thoughts, a great, great advice for folks kind of thinking about ways that they can integrate some of this stuff into their own life. Um, I don't, I'm not sure the last time you've been to Saskatoon or the last time you've been to Saskatoon in the, the dead of winter, um, but you would be thoroughly impressed with the number of winter cyclists in Saskatoon. It is absolutely unbelievable. And I am also a cyclist uh, and during my time in Saskatoon did a lot of winter biking, but there is a much more hardcore group than myself that never misses a day. It could be the windiest ugliest minus 35 day and there's you know the regular folks that you'll see commuting to work and they never miss a day so it's it's quite uh again may, maybe not for everyone and if you know people have littles that have to get to school or or daycare yeah. you know you know people have to do what they do but um but yeah it's quite inspiring to see the growing number of people who uh commit to riding their bike year round in Saskatoon <laughs> so <laughs> nice yeah, it's good. Um, I, I just want to pick up a little bit, Devin, on 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 what you mentioned there uh, around, you know, this this Canadian uh, understanding of of our environment and and abundance and sort of um, being, uh, you know, quite honestly, this idea that we are better than the rest of the world or our company, our oil companies or our um, mining companies are better than uh, other places. And um, it's interesting. I remember uh, I, I did my undergraduate studies at, at UBC in the Okanagan and took an in just, just one, but did take an environmental law class. And that was really the first time in my life. Uh, and again, thinking about folks who you know, maybe go to university in different places or, or don't go to university at all. Uh, that was the first class I ever took where that discussion happened really honestly, like this, this discussion about certain, certain mining companies and how they operate within Canada, um, but then how they choose to operate in other countries, because they can operate in a less less sustainable and less ethical way in other countries. And they were choosing to do that, even though they were a Canadian company. Um, and I remember at the time feeling a lot of, um, 
uh, well, going through this sort of crisis of realizing that, you know, Canadian companies aren't better than, um, and, and, you know, that was something that I sort of had, you know, pushed down to me by, like you say, by the public, by society in, in this Canadian context. But, um, yeah, anyways, that was just something I was reflecting on as you were talking is it's very much a part of our culture um, and a part of what is shared publicly is is this concept that there's this abundance um, and the op- what happens from an operating perspective in Canada is better than elsewhere. So, yeah. Well, and on that, I mean... So what EcoJustice does is we're a charity that provides free legal services to protect the environment, but we're more than that. We combine litigation with law reform and public outreach to educate the public, to mobilize politicians, to change the laws, which then we might enforce. But but talking about this issue of Canadians' self-perception, this, this notion of Canadian exceptionalism, one of the unfortunate responsibilities that comes with working to change things is you have to you have to start from that objective circumstance so quite often when i'm talking to folks i start with a depressing news which um is referring to any of a number of international studies conference board of canada oecd um, world resources institute that characterize canadians and canada's environmental or environmental legal performance relative to countries around the world and usually it stuns people to find out that among industrialized nations, we're often the worst. I mean, and you can't even sugarcoat it. We're the worst. We're the worst when it comes to forestry, oil and gas, emissions, water treatment. It's We're way behind others. Sometimes people say, whoa, whoa, isn't the United States worse than us? And just to give you a couple of examples, they are way better. So um, the United States has a Clean Air Act. The United States has clean water regulations. Canada doesn't have any legislation related to clean water or clean air. We have some regulations related to emissions and things like that. The And, you know, it's part of that is historic. Canada, and it feeds into the um, this time and awareness of colonization and the impacts of that on Indigenous people. The Canada was propagated as a colony to feed a mother country. And the laws that were designed in Canada for the perp- that, that dealt with the land and the environment all were originally about how can we maximize resources. So the first laws that we saw in Canada related to gold rush. And what they were really about is how can we make sure that the gold rush continues being unconstrained by these other issues? That Those elements, that source of law continues to this day. And so there are laws throughout Canada that act they call themselves environmental laws, like forestry laws or mining laws or whatever. What they're actually about is limiting consideration of harm to the environment in the process of mining. Um, some of which basically say that you can't consider issues other than production or productivity or resource outcomes or things like that. Anyway, so to get back to the point, EcoJustice still spends a ton of time and energy in just saying to Canadians, things aren't very good. Your politicians aren't being straight with you about what's happening on the ground. And we need to change. We need to change radically. Um, It's getting easier to have that conversation. You know, it's not that long ago that we had a federal government that was denying climate change. And I can think of, um, well, there's still, but 
governments across the country that wouldn't admit that Canada has a problem with an ever-growing number of species at risk. Now we're kind of seeing them talk about those things. You're seeing them in social media and things like that. So it's easier to talk about the issue and people are more accepting. But I think the average Canadian believes how governments market to them, what the state of the environment and their stewardship of the environment is. And so that typically Canadians think we're doing a great job. We, to give, I'm going on about things, but I'll give you just one example that I find compelling. When you poll Canadians and say to them, do you have the right to breathe clean air as a Canadian? Always the response overwhelmingly is Canadians believe they have that right. They think it's recognized by law and they don't. And and judges have commented that over time, Canada is one of the few industrialized nations in the world that doesn't have any overarching laws that say you have the right to breathe clean air. Um, more what we have is the right to pollute. And the right to pollute is far more prevalent in Canada than the right to protect people from pollution or environmental degradation or harm. Yeah. There. See, that's the, here's how you depress people at parties conversation. <laughs> yeah. There's, and, there's, you- there's silver linings, you know, we can get to the silver linings, but that in the first circumstance, Canadians are particularly unsustainable when it comes to comparing themselves with people in the world. You know, here's just another example. We often hear in kind of with racist undertones, um, other countries in the world or other people in the world are, are using and abusing the Earth's resources relative to Canadians. But if you were to look at the, this notion of the carbon footprint, the kind of the ecological impact of one person's life, um, the most recent objective analyses suggest that a Canadian's carbon footprint is about five times more than a person in China. Like we just eat and consume and buy and burn so much more than people around the world. So, and that's consistent with the state of the environment. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And and I think, you know, even just this, again, going back to that notion of abundance and space and those kinds of things, um, because we live in a country with few people and lots of space, we also don't have to look at the environmental problem, right? Like it's the, the system yeah. is is set up structurally such that, literally and structurally such that, um, yeah, I, I I can produce garbage. I mean, this is interesting. Living rurally, I'm so much more conscious of my garbage and recycling because. I physically have to take it to the garbage and recycling place. So I'm aware of exactly how much I produce in a certain amount of time. Um, But living in an urban center, uh, lots of people haven't even seen a, a landfill, like, you know, not been there. Don't know what happens. Don't, don't know what it looks like. Um, And so this disconnect of the damage that we produce, and that's not not just the waste conversation, the much larger conversation than that too, but um, that's just a simple one that people don't have to look at it. And there's this space to take our junk and take it to where we don't have to stare at it. And so it, again, removes people from this need to make any sort of change um, in both individually and push for change and ask for change of our politicians and governments. So, um, yeah, I. Well, and, and there's one other thing that, you know, that kind of magnifies that impact. It's the, what has happened and, and it's rampant is that 
mostly the Western industrialized world has been marketed to believe that a consumptive lifestyle, that a high consumption lifestyle is the means of fulfillment. So, so that's how our, our economies are designed. They're, they're designed on the, on the premise that if you consume, you'll be happy. Um, now, of course, we all have to you know, consume a certain extent, but in North America in particular, it's overconsumption, particularly relevant of, you know, as they say, the final arbiter is the ability of the earth to provide us with the things we need to live our lives and then absorb the waste that we produce from that. Well, in North America, we are way over the charts, over the limits for, for that cycle. So, you know, it's, 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 and the other part of it is, um, while there's the marketed myth that you can be happy through consumption, of course, there are objective analyses that show that there, the correlation is actually the opposite. And once you embark on higher earning, higher wealth lifestyles, you're likely to you know, suffer from heart disease or mental illness or whatever. Um, you actually are unhappy as a result. So we're kind of in this weird, weird mix. I feel you know, we can talk about things are changing. And I feel like there's a reckoning coming. But at this point in the trajectory, we're still at the let's maximize consumption, let's minimize our understanding of the risk to the environment, particularly in, in Canada, and let future generations suffer the consequences of that. Or actually, I don't think people even think about that there's consequences of that. Right. Yeah. There, again, this whole concept of being told a particular story um, and that being, you know, very public knowledge in Canada, there's definitely not a general understanding that we're impacting this this space that we get to live in that even even the next generation you know my children and grandchildren are not going to have the same not even the same environment locally that I had growing up or you had growing up right so it's um yeah, yeah. anyways but that's not necessarily something we talk about publicly and it's not something that is discussed kind of as a common thread as we as we talk with friends and and each other right so um so you've mentioned this a few times Devin and I'm just wondering this may be a good way to to leave us off you talked a bit about kind of silver linings and you know some positive things and things that are going on that you know people can can sort of look to as examples or, or things to inspire them um can you share some of those things like I, I'm imagining even in your work to um you know, this probably gets extremely exhausting and, and depressing to, to, you know, see these <laughs> things and be a part of it and, and to, you know, change is slow and that kind of thing. But I'm wondering if just as a way to leave us off, if you could share and, and feel free to share a couple of examples or stories of, of some of those silver linings. You know, the, and there are lots of reasons for hope. It, from a work perspective, one thing that I can say is for eco-justice, we're starting to see change. So what we are starting to see is politicians not kind of waiting for people to tell them what to do, but for describing a vision of a more sustainable future and working towards it. So we're starting to see the introduction of laws that will, they aren't there yet, but they're getting to the point of ensuring that the next generation has a healthy environment. And the other thing we're seeing is judges are changing. So when I started EcoJustice 20 years ago, you couldn't win in the courts. You couldn't get them to care about environmental issues. It's not the case at all now. Now you can have an objective informed conversation. And so we've won um, some recent lawsuits where we've gotten judges to say things like 
there is a climate emergency, we have to act. It's kind of a precursor for, for change. The thing that sustains me, there's two things. One, on this issue of things changing, the community that cares about this is growing. So it was a lot lonelier, lonelier being and someone that cared about the environment 20 years ago than there is now. And in particular, um, younger people, like they're just saying, I will not accept the world that I live in. And they're adamant about it. And so eco-justice has a huge population of people that are below 30. It's changed the organization. We wanted it to change. We went after those people. And they're fearless. So when I say things like environmentalism, it's counterculture. A lot of times it is, particularly if you're with an older crowd and you talk about the difference between Canadians' perception of how we are and how we are. Um, you get a backlash, or you get you you get ignored or discounted or whatever. Well, that's changing. The second thing is Canada does have abundance. Now you always want to be careful when you say that because you think, oh, somebody's just going to take advantage and exploit it, but we we're starting to see Canadians recognize what we have. We still have freshwater ecosystems that are healthy. We still have marine ecosystems that are healthy. We still have big swaths of forest, and you know we still have some species that are relatively intact. So there's for Canada, there's lots of time, and a lot of the conversations that we're we're having as an environmental community is. Um, making we have time to take the steps now to make sure that future generations can enjoy the environment and 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 a restored environment so uh you know when i want to feel fulfilled i can go within three hours from vancouver and be in a wilderness park that still has a wolf population which is a signal of a fairly intact ecosystem so there's there is doom and gloom on the horizon but there's lots to engage with environmentally that sustains me. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Thank you for sharing that. And I think, um, you know, I've noticed a change even since, you know, 10 years ago or 11 years ago. Now I, you know, graduated from high school. I moved to BC. I started my undergraduate studies in environmental science. And at that time, uh, was definitely a lone wolf in my rural small town community in terms of the things that I really, really cared about. Um, and, you know, when I moved back to Saskatchewan, and especially, you know, in the last three years, moved back to rural Saskatchewan, um, you know, I was a bit fearful or, or not fearful, but I, I just didn't know, you know, is that still the way things are? I did, you, you just never know, right? And it's been interesting getting to know, uh, I'm in a completely new area, I'm about an hour north of Saskatoon, so not where I grew up. Um, but it's been interesting to get to know people, um, rural people, lots of farm folk, um, but who are around my age and you know in their late 20s early 30s mid 30s who as farmers are are so connected to you know how they farm and how the soils are doing and what that's going to mean for their farm into future generations and you know soil health and ecosystem health and uh, especially in a drought year like this, like understanding the impact that that has in, in how do we how do we deal with these things if this is going to be the new normal and all of those kinds of conversations. Again, I feel like maybe they were happening a little bit 10 years ago, um, but it's much more common to have them regularly 
now. Like it's something where, you know, it, it's kind of a common conversation that I see happening and, and engage with even in a, you know, back into a small 350 person community living, living rurally. It's, it's definitely much more prevalent than it was 10 years ago, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. It's interesting. I'm heading back to Saskatchewan during my summer vacation. And I would agree. I would say the conversation, the awareness, the acceptance of the risk, a sense of the behavior changes necessary, it's changed radically. And it and the rate of change is a lot quicker than it used to be. Now, we're not yet at the point where people have actually changed behavior, not substantially, or or created expectations for politicians that they lead more strongly on the issues, but, but it is happening. So um, yeah, yeah, it's, and it's whether the change catches up with the state of the environment. We're still quite a bit behind the state of degradation, but you're right. It is happening. The other part of it too is, and there's people that are um, doing speaking tours about this right now. We regularly see circumstances where People, the public, the global population mobilizes in a way that addresses threat. And COVID is the best opportunity now. COVID sucks. The COVID life sucks. But the circumstance of internationally us responding to what, you know, was an existential threat, um, it demonstrates that if we treated climate change, for example, as emergency was, we could tackle it. So it used to be that I wondered, would we, could we ever do something no, I, I don't think that at all. I think it's just that we have to shift into gear. And I, and it's interesting. There's been a lot more of a conversation since people have characterized us as responding effectively to COVID saying, oh, yeah, we can do the same thing on the environment. We can do this. Um, we just need leadership and action. So I think the bizarre, that's a silver lining I'm plucking out of COVID, that it is telling us that that people can change and, and make massive change to confront environmental degradation and make sure we live sustainable for sure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And absolutely highlighted that ability for international collaboration to happen and to happen quickly. Um, and there to be those sort of open and transparent things happening. Um, you know, I, we're not there yet, obviously on, on the climate front or the environmental front, but exactly as you said, it, it, it shows that, you know, we are capable and it is possible to do that. And so, um, you know, kind of keep keeping on pushing for, for that to be something that we start to see as an emergency in the same way that we saw COVID as an, an immediate threat or an immediate emergency. So, yeah. Exactly. Well, Devin, this has been such a fantastic conversation. I really, um, yeah, I really appreciated all of all of what you shared and all of your insights. And and again, I'm sure we could talk about this stuff for a very long time. Um, so maybe sometime in the future, we'll have to have you back on um, as there's an emerging issue or something going on that um, you know we can get your thoughts and and knowledge on. But thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. And uh, it was great getting to know you. And yeah, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks a lot. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Sustainable Stories podcast. This podcast is hosted by myself, Jenna Inglot, as well as Roxanne Wagner from Sage Sustainable Solutions Consulting. 
For a full list of episodes, as well as more information about Sage, check us out online at sagesustainable.com. And as always, we welcome your feedback, thoughts, and suggestions. Catch you next time.